Turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 27. Now, um, as we begin here, I've just got some disturbing news, and I've got a Bible verse to back it up. Okay, you ready? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17 says this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. Bottom line is this, if Jesus Christ has not died, been buried, and raised again, you and I, we are totally wasting our time this morning. And furthermore, if we are following Jesus, we're wasting our life. If Christ has not been raised from the grave, he is just some sort of religious leader who died. And, and what we're doing, we're just kind of going through some semblance of religious motion. We have some sort of orientation. We're going to try to find some values and some sort of meaning, some sort of mystical purpose. But the reality is this, that Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead. Your faith is worthless. And that really is the question. Did Jesus really die and rise again? If he didn't, I I just want to tell you, you may as well just leave now because you are wasting your life. But on the other hand, If Jesus Christ truly did die and rise again, then this would be the single greatest event in history. And it literally, it changes everything. But everything hinges on this. Did he really rise from the dead? Well, first of all, we've got to find out, can we even be certain that he died? Did Jesus really die? Now, there's no, no one's debating Did he ever walk this earth? I mean, even non-Christians wrote of Jesus of Nazareth, his miraculous work. The question is, did he really die, though? Well, let's go back to where we were last week. We made our way through the Gospel of Matthew. We came to Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. Jesus, having been scourged, he's now been nailed to a cross. He's got three. He's been up there for six hours, verse 50, and Jesus cried out, Again, with a loud voice, he literally said to tell us die. It is finished. It has been accomplished. It is what a runner would say as he crossed the line and won to tell us die. It is finished. I have accomplished the work for which I've sent. And the text says, and he yielded up his spirit. Physically, you could observe Jesus. Literally, he yields his spirit. And the Romans that were crucifying him that day, I mean, these guys were professionals. They crucified lots of people. They can tell when a guy has died. And the centurion, who is a centurion, is a guy who oversees 100 soldiers, verse 54. Now, the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, they became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. The centurion's standing there, he's watching this. He sees Christ die, and then simultaneously there's this earthquake that takes place. It had already been dark for three hours, and he says he is the first one to confess that Jesus is the Son of God right after he dies. Now, the Gospel of John actually gives a lot of details, a lot of the gruesome details of the crucifixion, because of all the apostles, there's only one that is known to be around at the time that Jesus is being crucified. The rest of them are totally in hiding because they think they're next. John, on the other hand, actually stays there. He is actually by some of the women that were not afraid to be at the cross. Jesus, while he is on the cross, puts John in charge of his mother. I want you to take care of her. 
And so John records these events that takes place. Now, what, now this was, remember, this is on Passover. It's on a Friday. The next day is Saturday. It is Sabbath. It's a, it's a holy day. And on a Sabbath, you're to do no work. And so the Jews wanted to make sure that they had Jesus and those two criminals off the cross before the Sabbath. And so John records these events that they actually went and told Pilate, saying, wait, Passover's coming. We'd want these guys off that cross. We, we want to be able to celebrate the Passover. And so they requested that the legs be broken of those who were being crucified. And the reason that they would ask this is that they would literally be able to force themselves up. There might be a slat, like a little slat, like a piece of wood, where they could actually, those on the cross could force themselves up to get another gasp of breath. And that's how the Romans could keep someone alive for up to two to three days on a cross. But if you wanted just to end it, they had these large wooden mallets and they would literally come and they would just smash the legs, be intense pain, but they would then suffocate shortly thereafter. And so that's what the Jews are asking Pilate to do. Kill these guys, get them off the cross so we can celebrate the Sabbath and the Passover. And so that's exactly what happened. They came. John records these events. In fact, you can see it in John chapter 19, verse 32. So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. There are these two criminals that are crucified with Jesus. But look at verse 33. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately the blood and water came out. And and then he writes, and he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. And what these soldiers would do, this was called the death stroke. And so they, you would never take a person that was being crucified off a cross until they were dead. And so they would literally, just to prove or to show or may absolutely make sure that they were dead, they would issue or give the death stroke where they'd take a spear and they would lance that, that person who's being crucified, his heart. And that would just make absolutely sure that he was crucified and dead. And out comes blood and water, which is a medical indication that he is dead. They didn't know that by not breaking his bones that they were actually fulfilling prophecy. In Psalm 34, verse 20, it says, he keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. And then there is this amazing prophecy in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, that literally says this, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. And John, as he records the details of the crucifixion and the death of Christ, he actually names both of these prophecies as being fulfilled. They lance his side. It is a, it's a hole that's so big that later Thomas is going to be able to stick his hand in it. They lance his side and out comes water and blood. Now, what would happen after this is that they would take these bodies down from the cross. Now, the, the Romans could care less about criminals that had been crucified. And they oftentimes just would throw them in a common grave or they'd literally even throw them in these garbage dumps. There is one right outside the south of Jerusalem, and it was called Gehenna. And it was always burning. Jesus used it as a reference, like, this is what hell's going to look like. And they would just throw these bodies out there to burn. Animals could uh, take them over. And that's how they treated those who were crucified. Now, this is all taking place. This is all being observed, also not only by the soldiers, but look at verse 55. Many women were looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. These were women 
who came alongside. They ran support. They uh, would sometimes be like the advance team, finding places to stay, gathering food. They supported the ministry and all that would be needed from their own means financially. And they're actually listed. Verse 56, among them was Mary Magdalene, a woman who had been demon-possessed, whom Jesus had cast out those demons. And Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, likely a woman that was well-known in the early church, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Who's this? James and John, the sons of thunder, their mama traveled with them. Remember, she was the one who was, they actually had coaxed her and saying, hey, make sure that you ask Jesus so we can have the top two spots. OK, she was always nearby. Maybe she had to watch those boys. I don't know if they were always had a tendency to get in trouble or whatever. But she was part of this traveling troop. And all the disciples but one fled. These women are brave, though, and they watch and they make sure that he is dead. With certainty, Jesus died. Well, if he died, was he buried? Was he literally buried? What took place? Well, you don't have to wonder or guess. It's actually recorded. In fact, we have the surety of Christ's burial. So look at this here. Now, this is surprising. This verse 57 is going to be shocking, especially to Pilate. Look at this. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea, okay, that's about 20 miles north of Jerusalem, named Joseph, who himself also had become a disciple of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, do you know that this is so shocking? He is a part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling class of the Jews, the very same group that had their little mock trials in the middle of the night that were illegal. He was part of that. Luke records that he actually didn't agree, but he is a part of the ruling body of Jews. He is elite. He is rich. Notice what the text said, that he is a rich man, and he himself also had become a disciple of Jesus. He had listened. He had heard. He had become convinced. His heart was opened, and he actually believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And so look at this. He lays it all on the line. He is going to jeopardize everything in this next verse this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him you don't just say hey Pilate I'd like to talk with you okay it's you don't you know with Roman officials like that you don't just say hey I want to talk especially after hours Pilate's had a busy day I mean he just had a guy that was totally innocent get crucified It's Passover. There's all these Jews. The city is swelling. And you don't just say, Pilate, I want to talk to you. I want a question. I got a question. You got to be a man of real significance and of real importance if you're going to get an audience with Pilate. And that is exactly what takes place for Joseph of Arimathea. gets an audience and he makes a request. He asks for the body of Jesus and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Now, what he's doing, he's asking to bury Jesus. But in reality... To identify with Jesus, that means he is going to completely lose his place in the Sanhedrin. He is going to be jeopardized his economic, his social, and his family welfare. I mean, literally, to identify with Jesus is to put yourself as an outcast. And he asked for the body. Now, the Romans, they would allow family members to collect the body. If that's what you wanted and you want to take care of it, after he was dead and pulled off the cross, they'd give you the body. However... If you were an insurrectionist, no, it didn't work that way. They wouldn't let you have it. 
Not only could you not mourn publicly for someone who is being crucified, but if you were accused of treason or insurrection, you, they were going to throw the body in the dump unless you were an extremely prominent advocate. This goes against all reason. The, the only way this would happen is if Joseph of Arimathea was an extremely prominent individual and Pilate then gives him the body. And so Joseph, we see in verse 9, we also find from John's text that there was another one of the Sanhedrin by a guy by the name of Nicodemus who gets a lot of press of the Gospel of John. He also had become a disciple of Jesus. And so the two of them worked together. And so verse 59, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, signifying that this is, this is a man of means and of wealth. And he's giving Jesus like a, a very extravagant burial. And when they would wrap him in linen cloth, John records it's about 100 pounds worth of cloth, and they'd take spices and aloe and myrrh, and they'd wrap it after they'd washed this body, and they'd put it all along this wrapped linen, okay? So Jesus would be kind of like almost wrapped up like a mummy, and then they'd have this separate face cloth that they'd wrap over the face of Jesus. They actually take care of their body. They wrapped it in this clean linen cloth. And verse 60, did they bury Jesus? And they laid it in his own New, new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And so, so what we see here is Joseph has a new tomb, meaning it had been freshly carved out into some of the limestone rock, and these were places that you could actually walk in. The entrance might be four feet or so. You'd walk in, and they'd actually hew it all out, and they'd have these like slabs where they'd actually lay the body. That body would then decompose. After about a year, they would go back. They would open that stone again there. They'd go back in there. They'd take all the bones and they put it in a box called an ossuary. And then they put those boxes in shelves. And that is how you took care of, of bodies and that's how burials took place. And even today, they still discover these ossuaries where you have these boxes of bones. Well, that's the plan and that's what they're going to do with Jesus. After all, he is dead. Now, this stone is rather significant. To, to roll it down, it's kind of like on a groove, wouldn't be a whole lot of trouble. But it would take several men to push it back up. And the primary reason that they had that, that tomb blocked off like that is because they needed to prevent animals from getting in there. And so this tomb would be sealed off like that. If family members wanted to visit and perhaps, just like we would put flowers on a grave, go and give some additional uh, aloe and myrrh and some spices and maybe lay inside the body as a sign of respect, you could do that, but it would take a lot of work to get that stone. So they actually go and they put Jesus' body in this tomb. All of this, by the way, is fulfilling a prophecy of Messiah. Remember Isaiah 53, the great messianic set of prophecies? It said this, that his grave was assigned with wicked men. That's where he would have gone. They would have thrown Jesus' body in a grave with a bunch of wicked men. However, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Matthew brings again the attention he was with a rich man, fulfilling the prophecies. They rolled the stone, the tomb was sealed, and, and he went away. And verse 61, look at this. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary, sitting opposite the grave. These women, they're watching all of this. Now, we've got a situation here. We got Jesus buried, but the Pharisees, the leadership of the Jews, they are concerned that the disciples are going to try to pull off the ultimate hoax. And that is to steal the body of Jesus and then say he rose from the grave that he's alive because he can't find his body and they've got to make absolutely sure that that does not happen 
And so watch this, verse 62. Now on the next day, what would the next day? So Jesus crucified on a Friday. That's called the day of preparation. What are they preparing for? They're preparing for the Sabbath. The next day, that's Saturday. It is the Sabbath. What do you, what do you not do on the Sabbath? Work. And the Pharisees, they had it all lined out where you could hardly even move. They had so many laws that they had put them on themselves and they're trying to impose on everybody else. But they're going to, you can, you can conveniently dismiss those laws if it doesn't work for your purposes. And so on the next day, they violate all of their little laws. And verse 62, on the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees, on the Sabbath, they gathered together with Pilate. They're not, you would not go and talk to Pilate on the Sabbath. You wouldn't go walk over and visit him at the praetorium. You would not do that. They're doing all the things they would not do because there is something greater that is driving them. The fear that the disciples would take the body of Jesus and start perpetuating this amazing hoax. And so look at them. Verse 63. Sir, they all, they've been well trained in southern manners. They know how to pull it out when they need to. Sir. We remember that when he was still alive, notice what they called Jesus, that deceiver, okay? He said that after three days, I am to rise again. They understood clearly what he said. They understood that he was going to rise from the grave. In fact, Matthew records five times that Jesus actually says, I'm going to rise from the grave. Judas, the betrayer, heard every single one of those. And so they're saying, you know what? He had this idea that he was going to rise from the grave. We can't let that happen. And so they say, Pilate, we're going to help you out here. Verse 64, therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. <laughs> and the last deception will be worse than the first. What they're saying is this, Pilate, listen up. If those disciples take off with that body, you're going to have a revolt on, their hand, on your hands. Because you remember, not a few days ago, just a few days ago, when Jesus came in, they were all saying, Hail, Son of David, Hosanna, Son of David. They were claiming to be the Messiah. If he comes up missing, then they will believe that he's not only conquered death, but he most certainly can conquer Rome, and they will revolt. And one thing we don't want, Pilate, is the Jews to revolt against the Romans. And the other thing that they're not mentioning is that they would lose their place in society. And so, Pilate, you better act. You need to do something about this. You cannot afford for that body to end up missing. And so, Pilate thinks it over and he says, All right, verse 65. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. And they did. Remember, they have a whole contingent of soldiers. They actually used those soldiers to go and arrest Jesus. Those soldiers were meant to keep peace on the temple and, and kind of the surrounding activities around there. They reported to the chief priests. They reported to the authorities. Now, you, they couldn't, the, the Jews couldn't just say, hey, we want you to go and do something that would be against Roman principles. But in matters of keeping things in line, they could tell those guards what to do. And those guards, because Pilate had assigned them to the chief priests, basically did what was asked of them. And so they said, you have a guard already. Go and make it as secure, secure as you know how. And so, verse 66, they went and made the grave secure along with the guard. They set a seal on the stone. And so this is what they did. You got that stone in front of there. They, they have all these guards. We do not know how many there are, but there's a number of them. And they take like a cord, and they actually have it fastened from one end of the grave 
to the other where it goes over the round circular stone. They got, that cord is then stretched across there, and then they take wax, they heat it up, they put it on that cord, and they impress it with a Roman seal. And to do so was to basically say, you mess with that seal. If this cord gets broken, other than official, in an official capacity, you're going to mess with the Roman Empire and you will face its wrath, okay? You don't touch it. It's got the seal of Rome on it. And so that's exactly what they do. Now, has Jesus been buried? Absolutely. In fact, his, te- his tomb is sealed with a Roman seal and he's got guards in front of it. He's dead and he's buried. No one's going to get to that body. But the real question is, did Jesus really rise from the grave? Well, watch this. Look at chapter 28, final chapter in the Gospel of Matthew, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, so we had Friday he's killed, buried, Saturday, Sabbath. After the Sabbath, Verse 1, as it began to dawn toward the first of the day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. I mean, you've got to admire these women. The disciples, nowhere to be found. These women, they're there. They watch him get killed. They watch him get buried. And before the sun has even come up, they've already gathered their spices. They rested on the Sabbath, and they're going to be the first ones to the tomb. Now, Mark records that they're concerned because they don't know how they're going to get that stone rolled. They're going to need someone to help them. But they want to go, and they want to put spices and myrrh next to the Jesus body. Just like you would bring flowers to a grave, they want to do this just to express their love and their devotion, their sorrow. that Jesus has been killed by the Romans and rejected by the Jews. But there is something that takes place. As they're making their way to the grave, verse 2, Behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Now, who's at the grave? Before the women get there, you've got these Roman soldiers that are guarding the grave. Okay? You would think, like, probably not a lot of activity. All of a sudden, there's an earthquake. The last time they had an earthquake, Jesus died. Remember that? Now the earth is shaking All of a sudden, you've got this angel, and notice how he's described here, verse 3. His appearance was like lightning. These angelic beings, their their appearance is like lightning, and their clothing, his clothing was as white as snow. He's literally glistening and gleaming. Power is just simply emerging. He actually literally rolls away this stone, and look at verse 4. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. They literally were just paralyzed with fear. They just... Never seen anything like this. I mean, they're guarding a grave. There's no action. Nothing ever happens. All of a sudden, earthquake. This angel appears. They're literally frightened. They're paralyzed with fear. And they literally, like the text says there, they became like dead men. They were just shocked out of their senses. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. And the same word for earthquake that you find in in verse 2 is the same word that they used about the word for shock seismos it's they have this earthquake in their own life their own heart their own mind well they're paralyzed as soon as they finally come to you're like ah and you got to get out of there and so they are you're going to find out here in just a few verses they are hightailing it out of there they cannot believe they will see the stone open you know stone rolled away the tomb is empty they're on guard and they're like we're out of here and they they literally they flee now the women there they come They're obviously not there uh, in verse 5. And they make their appearance. 
And the angel said to the women, you've got to gotta imagine them walking the tomb, seeing it rolling. And there's this glistening, gleaming angel. And his angel said, verse 5, do not be afraid. And I'm sure that under, afraid was an understatement at this point for them. Like, what, 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 what? And for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified, and he is not here. For he has risen, just as he said, come, see the place where he's lying. He's not here. Come. And so they're looking. They had seen Jesus all wrapped up, placed on the shelf. They watched all this. He's not there. In fact, the only thing that is there are these linen wrappings that had been, he'd literally just kind of passed through. There's linen wrappings that had once encompassed his body and was just laying there. And this face cloth has been rolled up, John records, set aside. And they're like, what? 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 The, the angel's saying, he's risen just like he said. Come, see the place where he's lying. Do not be afraid. He is the one. He is back from the dead. And so they say, verse 7, he says, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. He had said five different times in the Gospel of Matthew, I'm going to rise on the third day. And I'm sure they heard that, but, you know, come on. Coming back from the dead, not your everyday occurrence. And now it has taken place. And he says, Jesus said it, and it's happened. He's not here. You go tell the other guys that are holed up, probably in Jerusalem somewhere, go on and get going to Galilee. Because that's what he told them. Remember even when they celebrated the, that last Passover supper? I'm going to meet you again in Galilee. Now, there are going to be some other appearances prior to their big meeting in Galilee where that's the exact same place he said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Now he's going to recommission them. But he says, you go back and you tell the boys, start heading to Galilee because he's risen and Jesus is going to meet them there. Whoa. Verse 8. They left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. Can you imagine? I mean, talk about a heart racing. They're just like, whoa. You know, they just, I, I can't believe it. They're afraid. And that they have great joy because Jesus is risen. And they're going to, they ran and they're going to report this to his disciples. And as they are making their way, verse 9, look at this. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. What? Jesus is there. Wait, wait, wait. He met them and greeted them. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and worshipped him. This is what you would do for a, like a king. Oh, you would actually literally fall down and you would grab their feet. Here's Jesus. He's, he's alive. He's risen. When they fall down and they lay hold of his feet, those nail scars would have miraculously heal, healed over. And yet they would be very visible. In fact, they are still visible today. And they literally lay hold of the feet, the very one who's been pierced on their behalf. He's the one who greets them. He actually gives them just kind of a common greeting, like, like hello. Like he's saying, hi. And they're like, what? Hey, they can't believe it. There's Jesus. They worship him as Lord, King, because he is. And he's alive. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. I'll tell you, our Lord knows us very well. We are so prone to fear. Fear paralyzes us. 
Jesus says, do not be afraid. I want you to go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Do you know, see what he calls them? My brethren. The very ones who forsook him, abandoned him, one of them denied him. He says, I call them brethren. He's telling him, I love you. I cannot wait to see you. I restore you. I forgive you. Tell my brethren I'm going to meet them in Galilee. Now, there are going to be several other appearances before Galilee, but these, now these women have seen Jesus himself. They are going now as the very first ones who ever bear testimony of seeing the risen Lord. Now, you're like, wow, that is fascinating. But to the Jewish mind, this is like unbelievable because women didn't have a real high place of respect. Their testimony wasn't oftentimes seen as credible. But one of the evidences that the text of the New Testament is absolutely accurate is that it is reported just the way it happened. And God says, I will have women be my deliverer of the good news of my resurrection. Well, remember those guards? Well, watch this. Verse 11, man. They had never run so fast in their life. Verse 11, now while they were on their way, ho, way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all that has happened. Okay, do you think they're going to stop over and check in with Pilate and say, hey, Pilate, there's a few things you need to know here. Uh, the body that we're guarding, it, it's gone. Absolutely not. They report to the chief priest because Why? That is who they are under. Their pilots had basically assigned them to them. So they go and make the report. They are recounting this angel, the stone being rolled away, the tomb being opened, all the linen wrappings lying right there as if Jesus just passed through it, the face cloth rolled over, rolled in a place. They're reporting everything except probably the part about the fainting, okay? They probably mentioned the angel, but of course we're men. And these guys are train killers, okay? They're not going to report that that they were afraid and passed out. They're, they're going to probably omit that one detail. They report all the things that had happened. And so now we've got a serious situation. The situation is this. The religious leaders' worst fears had been realized because Jesus' body had disappeared from the tomb. At this point, they should have stopped and started considering the facts. But no, what do you do? You devise a plan to explain it all. And this is pretty ironic. The chief priests now are forced to basically get the guards to tell a lie about the very thing they tried to prevent. Remember? Why did they go to Pilate? We're going to make sure the body doesn't get stolen. Well, here we go. We got the body gone. You got it? We got to do something about it. Because to believe in it would mean to believe that he's the Messiah. And we're not doing that. So they have a council. Look at verse 12. And so when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, now this is what you are to say. Verse 13. Say this. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. This is your story. That is what we're paying you to say. Say it. And, verse 14, and if this should come to the governor's ears i.e. Pilate gets wind of this, well, don't worry about it, boys. We'll take care of him. We will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And Pilate was known to take bribes, and these Jewish leaders had figured out that money speaks, and it accomplishes the work you need. They can pay off Judas. They can pay off these soldiers. They can pay off Pilate if need be. And so they said, this is your story. 
And so they took the money and did as they had been instructed, verse 15. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Now, I want you to think about this story for just a few minutes. First of all, this story has some huge, serious flaws to it. First of all, if you were a Roman soldier and you were, you were guarding something, that was, you either found that, that you were a guard that fell asleep at your post or if your prisoner escaped, do you know what that meant? It meant that you died in that prisoner's place. You were executed. In fact, Acts chapter 12 records the very same event. Prisoner escaped. It happened to be Peter. And those guards that were guarding his cell, all of them, after they gave testimony what happened, they were executed. That's how it works in Rome. So do you think these guys fell asleep? No. And they're certainly not going to go advertise, yeah, well, we fell asleep on the job. Because if you fell asleep at your post, you died. Simple as that. But they're, they're saying, you just tell that story, okay? So they, want to, they understood the penalty. That's why they have to pay a pretty large sum because these soldiers are on the line. And then let me give you some other things here. If, if they were asleep, how did they know that the, uh, the body was stolen? You know, like how did they see it if they were sleeping? And how did they know it was the disciples? I mean, come on, when you're sleeping, do you know what's going on? No. You know, like if you're sleeping in class, you know, and things are going on, do you know what's going on? Of course you don't know what's going on, right? How, if they're asleep, how did they know that it was the disciples that are the ones that stole the body? And, and if, really, if the disciples really stole the body, well, then the religious leaders should have had what? The disciples arrested. Okay? They're going to be able to find them. But that's, this is all a made-up story. And so they're not going to do that. And then uh, the, another thing that's pretty interesting here is if this story is true, why did this soldiers have to be bribed? And let me give you one other. Uh, if the disciples, who, by the way, couldn't show up for the crucifixion because they were so scared spitless, were going to steal the body, you think they'd take the time to unwrap all that 100 pounds worth of cloth, put it back like it was like a mummy shape, roll up the face cloth, and then escape past the sleeping soldiers? I mean, does that make any rational sense whatsoever? And yet that is the story. In fact, that story got perpetuated even Justin Martyr uh, writing about 100 years after this event is still going to task saying that this hoax that is being perpetuated by the Jews absolutely cannot be true. And yet this myth continues. You see, you cannot deny that Jesus is not in the tomb. So you've got to either believe or you have to explain it away. So that is one myth. Let me give you a couple other myths that are out there that surface. One is that, well, the women, they went to the wrong tomb. Okay, does that make sense? They, they actually followed the tomb. They knew exactly one. These tombs were just family plots, okay? They went to the wrong one, and that's what happened there. They just were misguided. Um, but one that has had a lot of popularity is called the swoon theory. In 1600, there's a man by the name of Venturini, and he came up with this idea that Jesus really didn't die, but that he swooned, that he literally went into like a coma state. And so what happened is that Jesus really wasn't dead. They, they took him off the cross. They thought he was dead. They wrapped him all up. But when he was in the coolness of the tomb and because of those spices, he suddenly kind of was revived and was able to get out of all those wrappings. He was able to move aside that stone, get by the sleeping soldiers without anything, not, not to mention all the loss of blood, everything that had happened to him, and that he appeared to his disciples. Some versions of the story say that, like, well, the disciples kind of nursed him back to health to perpetuate this lie. Now, does that make sense? 
Well, this, uh, I, I've actually had this. People have uh, told me this. I remember working at State Farm where a guy came to try to convince my coworkers that Jesus had swooned. He had gone to a coma, but then he'd revived again in the grave. I had the privilege of meeting him in the conference room and going over a few passages with him to say that certainly was not the case, even if you were a Sunday school teacher at your church. But J. Vernon McGee, popular late Bible um, uh, teacher, pastor, he's on the radio, he had a listener write in about the situation where this was what this woman wrote. Our preacher said that on Easter, Jesus just swooned and on the cross and that the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? Well, this is what J. Vernon McGee reported. This is what you do if you've got a pastor that believes that, that Jesus kind of swooned. He went into a coma, but he came back. Quote, Dear sister, beat your preacher with a leather whip for 30, with 39 heavy strokes. Nail him to a cross. Hang him in the sun for six hours. Run a spear through his heart. Embalm him. Put him in the airless tomb for three days. And then see what happens. Okay? Now, this might be just from his good, straightforward Texas upbringing. But let me assure you, Jesus didn't just come out of a coma. He was dead. And he's alive. Why would you believe a lie when you can live in the truth? And central to all of Christianity is the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. There are about a dozen appearances that Jesus makes, including to over 500 people. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. It is the single most important event of all history. It proves that Jesus is God's son. Let me tell you some other things. It verifies the truth of Scripture. Jesus said, I'll come back on the third day, and he did. It guarantees that salvation is complete. He purchased your redemption. You can't do anything. You can't earn God's favor. He purchased it. It assures our own future resurrection. Because Jesus is alive, those who believe in him are going to experience this resurrection, this bodily resurrection. It also attests that the church has been established. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. He comes back from the dead. He is the living God, and he is building his church even today. It authenticates that heaven is waiting. When you pass, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. It is proof of the future judgment. Because what happened, like Acts chapter 17, verse 31 says, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. This one that was crucified and is alive will be the judge of all mankind. It is the basis of Christ's heavenly priesthood. He is alive today and he is praying for you and I. He is praying for his people continually. He is a high priest. It is our power for Christian living. We function in the strength of Christ because of his resurrection and it assures our future inheritance. Let me tell you, the resurrection is central to all Christianity. The very first sermon that was preached by Peter at Pentecost 50 days later, guess what the highlight of the message is? Jesus Christ whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. And every gospel presentation, all gospel teaching, all of life is based on this, that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. And so that the truth that transforms our lives, past, present, and future, is this. He has risen. So just like Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, will live even if he dies.
Or like he said just a chapter later, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Did he rise? He did. And so the question is, what will you do with Jesus? Faith is taking God at his word. And if you will trust in Christ, you experience the merits, the benefits, and the blessings of Jesus died and rose again on our behalf. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing passage of Scripture. The fact that Jesus is risen from the grave resolves all of the issues for us. Our sin has been paid for. Our eternal life has been secured. We have the hope of the living presence of Jesus dwelling within us, filled with the Spirit, that we might sing your praises and live out your truth, that we might be witnesses of his life, his death, and his resurrection because of what you've done on our behalf. Lord, may we live in the light of the reality that Jesus is risen from the grave for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.